Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Nirvana is one of those bands where it seems that we know everything there is to know about them. When they broke through with the Nevermind album in 1991 and 1992, there was this rush to learn everything that we could about them. And then when Kurt died, which happened roughly at the same time the internet began to be a thing with the general public, that interest exploded. Now, in the decades since Nirvana ceased to exist, study of the band, its history, its individual members, and its influence can be best described as scholarship. That's how deep we are into this band. So, what's there left to learn, really? Well, you might be surprised. Here are 10 unusual and little-known things about one of the best documented bands in the history of rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I gave myself another tough assignment for this show. Is there anything left to know about Nirvana? Tens of millions of words have been written on them since they ceased to exist, along with Kurt Cobain, in April of 1994. What's been missed? Or at the very least, are there any unusual things about the band, its members, its associates, and its music that are at least unknown outside the community of, uh, you know, Nirvana obsessives. Obsessions like this, though, are my specialty. I love a challenge. So, here we go with 10 unusual, or at least lesser-known facts about Nirvana. Fact number one. If you really want to push it, Kurt Cobain is uh, vaguely Canadian. Yes, Kurt was born at the community hospital in Aberdeen, Washington, on February 20th, 1967. But if you trace his ancestry on his father's side, which seems to be all the rage these days, you end up with a family from Skye Towland in County Tyrone in Ireland. They spelled their name C-O-B-A-N-E. Sometime around 1875, they gathered up their courage and left a village named Initiative. Seriously. And they moved to Cornwall, Ontario, where patriarch Samuel Cobain worked as a shoemaker. This would be Kurt's great-great-great-grandfather. After a time there, and census records do say that there was a Samuel Cobain, a wife and seven children, some of which were presumably born in Canada, they pulled up stakes and moved to Grays Harbor County, which is where we find the logging town of Aberdeen, Washington. Now, I, I know that, that hardly qualifies Kurt as CanCon, but it, it is still kind of cool, right? And since we're talking about family trees, the first Cobain to have any kind of musical success was Kurt's great-uncle Delbert. That's his mother's uncle. He was a very respected Irish tenor who can be seen in a 1930 movie called King of Jazz, which, despite being the first ever full-length Technicolor production and featuring Paul Whiteman, the biggest band leader of the day, it was a total flop for Universal. I couldn't find any examples of Delbert singing, but here is an example of the kind of music from the film. This, for example, is a young singer named Bing Crosby. Happy feet, I've got those happy feet. Give them a low down beat, and they begin dancing. I've got those I wonder how great-uncle Delbert might have thought about the kind of thing his great-nephew eventually became famous for. Nirvana with the music video version of In Bloom. All right, unusual or at least lesser-known Nirvana fact number two. What is the first name of the group's bass player? 
Now, this is a bit trickier than you might think. We've known him as Krist Novoselic. That's K-R-I-S-T. We've called him that for decades now, but that's different from when he was born on May the 16th, 1965. Because he was the son of traditional-minded Croatian immigrants, mom and dad spelled his name in the old world way, which was K-R-S-T-E. This was partly in tribute to his father, whose name is Christo, K-R-I-S-T-O. When he enrolled in school, his name was anglicized as Chris, C-H-R-I-S. He stayed Chris for years until he went to Yugoslavia in 1980 at the age of 15. Now, remember that Croatia still didn't exist as an independent country back then. That's when he went to a Croatian high school in the town of Zadar on the Adriatic coast. While he was learning algebra, the finer points of Marxist ideology and history, he also learned how to assemble and disassemble a machine gun. This was part of his civil defense class. This experience, the whole high school thing, not just the gun thing, enforced his notions of cultural identity. He also learned that Novoselic was a fairly unusual name for Croatian and Serbian. It meant new villager, by the way. Anyway, Chris ended up returning home to his parents in Aberdeen, Washington, where his mom ran a beauty salon and his dad worked as a machinist. And it appears this is when he started favoring Christ again, K-R-I-S-T. When Nirvana emerged, he was often credited as Chris Novoselic, which was probably a record company thing. But by the time we got to Nevermind, Chris had become Christ, K-R-I-S-T, again. Anytime anyone called him Chris, that person would be corrected. And from there on in, it has been Christ Novoselic. I hope that clears things up. In our days, cause I found God. Yeah, yeah. There, I, I hope we've cleared up the mystery of the name of Nirvana's bass player. And since we're on the topic of names, here is unusual or at least lesser known Nirvana fact number three. When did the band actually adopt that name? When did they become Nirvana? Another tricky question. The first band Kurt formed was called Fecal Matter, which was charming. This was in the fall of 1985. That group went through several incarnations, but came undone by the spring of 1986. Next, Kurt fronted a band called Brown Towel, which was sometimes misbilled as Brown Cow. The first time Kurt and Chris performed together was at a house party on March 7, 1987. The drummer was Aaron Burkhard, and their name at the time was Skid Row. Not that Skid Row, obviously. This is another thing entirely. Other names considered at the time included Bat Guano, Designer Drugs, Gut Bomb, Egg Flog, Fish Food, Puking Worms, Bliss, Whiskey Biscuit, Incompetent Fools, Poo Poo Box, Pen Cap Chew, Throat Oyster, Window Frame, Yin Yang Valve Stem, and Ed Ted Fred. Now, could you imagine them being successful if they had settled on any of those? When they went into the studio for the first time on January 2nd, 1988 to record some demos, they were still trading under the name Ed Ted Fred. It wasn't until a gig in Tacoma, Washington on March the 19th of 1988 that they presented themselves as Nirvana. Now, this was Kurt's idea. He was dabbling in Buddhism at the time and learned that Nirvana meant a state or place that was free from pain, worry, and the troubles of the world. Since he was already suffering from his legendarily bad stomach and the psychic damage of his parents' divorce, the name really appealed to him. That night, Nirvana played a 16-song set that included this song. This particular recording was taken from the sessions they recorded earlier in the year when Nirvana was still Ed Ted Fred. Mm -hmm. 
first demo of Nirvana performing what would be their first sub-pop single, Love Buzz, which, in case you didn't know, is a cover of a song by a Dutch band called Shocking Blue. All right, unusual or at least lesser-known Nirvana fact number four. One of the band's earliest filmed gigs was done inside a Radio Shack store. This was January 24, 1988. Eric Harder, a friend of Kurt's and the manager of the Radio Shack store in Aberdeen, Washington, brought the band, which, again, still known as Ed, Ted, Fred, into the store and videoed the band, miming to the demo tape that they had recorded the day before. We know that they're just faking it because, well, the guitars clearly aren't plugged in. In the video, we see Kurt, Chris, and drummer Dale Crover jump up and down for about 17 minutes. The only thing that's live is the drums. Maybe you've seen the footage online. If not, here's at least some of the audio. It's pretty raw, but it is still history. That's not the whole thing, obviously, but you get the idea. The video is really cheesy, really low-budget stuff, and Kurt was actually upset that it wasn't more professional-looking, but he watched it over and over again, learning how the band's presentation could be better. We will continue with these weird, lesser-known Nirvana facts in just a second, with the story of the time Nirvana had to steal one of their own songs back from bootleggers. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I call this show 10 Unusual or at least Lesser Known Facts About Nirvana, and we're up to fact number five. This has to do with the time Nirvana had to steal back one of their own songs from bootleggers. On June 30th, 1988, Nirvana went into the studio to finish off the second half of a two-day recording session. Little money meant little time, so they had to rush through the process. One of the three songs they recorded that day was called Blandest. However, the song was under-rehearsed and the recording just didn't work, so Kurt ordered the song to be erased. We'll come back to it later, he said, but for whatever reason, they never did. Fast forward about 15 years. Kurt has already been gone for a decade, and Nirvana's record company was anxious to put out a commemorative box set, which was going to be called With the Lights Out. Somebody mentioned this lost song called Blandest. Could anybody find a copy? Well, no, said the band. Kurt ordered it erased. We, we don't have that recording anywhere. However, upon closer inspection, the song seems to have been stolen right out of Reciprocal Studios in June of 1988, because it could be found on any number of bootlegs. But these versions weren't from that particular day in the studio. They apparently came from cassettes featuring rough mixes of the song. It looks like one of these cassettes was swiped from one of the band members. Maybe it was Kurt. So you know what the solution was? The record company and Nirvana just stole the track back from people who had bootlegged this particular song on CDs and records around the world. And this is what we hear in the With the Lights Out box set.
A lost Nirvana song from 1988 that was rescued from oblivion and extinction by unknown bootleggers. Unusual, or at least lesser-known, Nirvana fact number six. Nirvana was briefly a four-piece band. Throughout Nirvana's history, it was always Kurt and Chris and whoever they could find to play drums. It was Dale Peters, it was Dale Foster, Dale Crover, Aaron Burkhardt, Chad Channing, and finally Dave Grohl. But at one point, there were two guitarists in the band. This guy's name was Jason Everman. He was a guy from Alaska who was an early supporter of the band. If you look at the liner notes for the Bleach album, you'll see that Jason is given a credit for playing guitar. This is not true. What is true is that he footed the entire $606.17 cost of recording the album. As a thank you, Kurt made it look like Jason played on the record. But let's be clear, he did not. However, when it came time to plan Nirvana's first big tour, this would be February of 1989, Kurt asked Jason if he wanted to join the band as a second guitarist. Since Jason was between fishing seasons up in Alaska, he said, sure. And on June 21st, 1989, the tour began with Jason as a member of Nirvana. However, this arrangement lasted less than a month. Jason's final show was at the Pyramid Club in New York City on July the 18th. Kurt was homesick, he was having stomach problems, and everybody was pretty annoyed at Jason's overall attitude by this time. Meanwhile, Jason wanted Kurt to pay attention to some of his musical ideas, but you can imagine how far he got with that. All remaining shows on the tour were canceled, including gigs in Toronto and Montreal, and the band deadheaded it back home to Seattle. They were so pissed with Jason that they nearly left him in New York. Here's a really rare recording from that 1989 tour. This is Nirvana with Jason Everman on guitar and a song called Mr. Mustache. Nirvana, from that brief 30-day moment in 1989 when they were a quartet featuring second guitarist Jason Everman. That was the last time Nirvana would officially contain more than three people. They almost hired a replacement for Jason, a guy named Ben Shepard, but the day after his audition, he got a better offer, so he took that. Uh, and by the way, that offer was from a, another local band called uh, Soundgarden. But don't feel too bad for Jason. In September, he won another gig with another Seattle band and was with them for about a year, which included appearing on an album and participating in a world tour. That band was also called Soundgarden. It's a weird cross-pollination. After Jason left Soundgarden, or was fired or whatever, he joined a band called Mindfunk and then signed up for the Army, where he became a special ops army rager going on dangerous missions in Afghanistan. After that, he became a monk in Nepal and then enrolled as a philosophy major and got his B.A. Unusual, or at least lesser-known, Nirvana fact number seven, Kurt threw bottles at his own drummer during gigs. While Kurt and Chris always seemed to get along very well most of the time, there was always friction with whoever was playing drums. In the spring of 1990, shortly after Nirvana recorded demos that they hoped would lead to a major label record deal, they played their first show in Toronto at Lee's Palace. By this time, Kurt was not happy with drummer Chad Channing. Now, at this time, at the end of a show, Kurt and Chris would trash their instruments and do their very best to wreck Chad's drums. At the Lee's Palace show, Kurt started throwing glass bottles at the wall behind Chad, and the audience followed. 
Imagine being stuck as the target of all that. There is a recording of that one-hour set. If you stay to the end of the song, you'll hear the glass shattering on the wall behind Chad. Yes, uh, please recycle all that broken glass. That's Nirvana live at Lee's Palace in Toronto on April the 16th of 1990. Three more unusual, or at least little-known facts about Nirvana still to come. You'll want to hear these. Don't go away. Okay, wow, oh, look at the time. And we still have to get through three more unusual, or at least little-known facts about Nirvana. Here is fact number eight. Dave Grohl's dad covered the Kent State Massacre in 1970. Back then, 1970, the Grohls lived in Niles, Ohio, which is just outside Columbus. James Grohl, Dave's dad, was a writer and reporter for the Scripps News Agency. When protests against the Vietnam War broke out on May 1st of 1970, Mr. Grohl drew the assignment. He was there when the National Guard fired upon protesters and four students were killed. James Grohl won several awards for his on-the-spot reporting, which earned him a big promotion. He was reassigned to Washington, D.C. to cover national politics, and that's where Dave grew up. That's also where he discovered music. That's where he played in his first bands. Now, you gotta think, had it not been for the National Guard killing four unarmed students at Kent State, who knows if we'd ever have heard of Dave Grohl. Unusual or at least lesser-known Nirvana fact number nine. Dave Grohl joined Nirvana because the bass player in his band broke up with his girlfriend. Dave dropped out of high school to join a DC punk band called Scream, and he played and toured with them for about three years. But the band stalled, and in the middle of a tour in Los Angeles, the bass player, a guy by the name of Skeeter Thompson, totally flaked out over the loss of his girlfriend. And a bunch of shows had to be canceled, which wasn't good news for Dave because... Well, he and the rest of the band didn't have any money. This was the summer of 1990. Two things saved him. First of all, he was able to crash at a place with three female mud wrestlers. Okay, so he at least had a place to stay. Second, he was able to find cash work tiling floors and bathrooms. That bought some food. But Dave was very depressed. He noticed that a Washington state band called the Melvins was in town, and he made a phone call to leader King Buzzo. They'd met up in Europe and had become acquaintances. Hey, look at man, I'm, I'm really bummed out. Can you put me on your guest list? No problem. Come on by. At that gig, King Buzzo, who was Kurt Cobain's idol, told Dave that his friend Kurt had this band and needed a drummer. So Dave packed up all his drums and some cardboard boxes and flew up to Seattle on September the 21st of 1990. Four days later, he had his formal audition with the band and he obviously passed. Again, think of all the things that had to happen for Dave to become a member of Nirvana. Dave has never forgotten Skeeter Thompson and how thankful he is that Skeeter had such bad girlfriend trouble. In fact, Dave once wrote a song about him called Just Another Story About Skeeter Thompson. The song does not appear on any Nirvana or Foo Fighters recording. The only place it can be found is on a cassette-only release that Dave released under the name Late at the very end of 1990. The tape is called Pocket Watch. Let's listen. So we were in Amsterdam. 
and we were staying at this guy Toss's house, a good friend of ours. Um, kind of in the middle of the city. We were just finished with our second European tour. And everything was going pretty Dave Grohl with his buddy Barnett Jones performing under the name Late. And that tells a story of Skeeter Thompson, a guy who broke up with his girlfriend in his old band Scream and allowed Dave to become a member of Nirvana. One more. This is unusual or at least lesser known fact about Nirvana number 10. Suicide actually runs in Kurt's family. Despite all the conspiracy theories, the prevailing wisdom is that Kurt took his own life with a Remington shotgun sometime on April the 5th of 1994, dying at the age of 27. To some, this was a surprise. To other people, not so much, because he'd long joked about and threatened suicide as far back as his teens. He said he had suicide genes. Now, let's examine that. His great-great-grandfather, John Cobain, was a former county sheriff who accidentally killed himself when his gun discharged back in 1938. His great-grandfather on his mother's side, James Irving, stabbed himself in the stomach in front of his whole family. He was sent to a mental facility where he died two months later when he ripped out all the stitches from his stab wounds. This was 1935. In 1979, Kurt's great-uncle Burl Cobain killed himself. First, he shot himself in the stomach with a 38 caliber pistol, and when that didn't work, he shot himself in the head. When Kurt was 14, he told friends that he planned to kill himself one day, after he became a big rock star. Talk of suicide continued when the brother of his friend Bill Burkhardt killed himself. Kurt, Bill, and their friend John were on their way home from school one day when they found this guy's body hanging from a tree. They stood there for 30 minutes until the police forced them to go away. When he was 15, Kurt and his stepbrother James made a short film called Kurt Commits Bloody Suicide. The footage featured Kurt faking suicide attempts by cutting his wrists with the jagged bits of a soft drink can. There was all kinds of fake blood, too. Then, in the summer of 1983, Kurt got really dark. As he wrote in his journals, I decided in the next month that I'll not sit on my roof and think about jumping, but I'll actually kill myself. He never followed through on that, obviously. But when he was 16, he got really stoned and drunk and went down to some nearby train tracks where he laid down with a large piece of cement on his chest. The 11 p.m. train approached, and he waited to die. But then the train went right past him. He laid down on the wrong set of tracks. There were cries of help throughout his adult life, including the infamous attempt at a drug overdose in a Rome hotel in March of 1994. But a month later, after years of threatening to do it, he finally did. I hope I managed to surprise you with these 10 unusual or at least lesser known facts about Nirvana. They're just one of those bands whose history is so deep that the more you look, the more you learn, even if you think you know the group inside out. I'm always available through email through alan at alancross.ca. There's my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. You should get the newsletter that goes with it. I mean, why not? It's free. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 